Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Rebecca Baderman. Rebecca is an innovation expert and advisor with experience across Indiegogo, Lego, and most recently, NASA. Innovating with the competition, the Deep Space Food Challenge, accelerating novel technologies in food production. Over to Rebecca and Maxine. We are thrilled to have you as a guest on the podcast, Rebecca, an expert on very much the kind of a what, why and how of innovation. And we know you as at Label Sessions as someone who's really interested in some really interesting things so around new product development and consumer goods from P&G to Gillette to a bit of a shift to working with NASA on their um, Deep Space Food Challenge. Um, but maybe you could introduce yourself to the Label uh, Sessions audience and share a bit of um, your journey. Hi, I'm Rebecca Batterman. Um, I'm an innovation advisor, consultant, lots of different titles, depends on the situation and the day. Um, my career has really been, um, it started thinking about innovative ways that brands and consumers connect. Um, I was very into product placement at the time when I first started, which is just always being fascinated by new ways brands and consumers are connecting. Um, I was early days experiential marketing. Um, another way we're thinking through how are we, how are we making this connection? How do we do it in an, an authentic way? And I've kind of been on the journey through that into corporate innovation heights and innovation labs and then into Web3 and emerging tech. And so I'm kind of each new thing, I, I, I tend to be a part of it and um, bringing it to the masses. So it's been it's been a fun journey. Maybe we could kick off. Um, I'm quite curious for you, where does this first spark come from for you when you're thinking about you know, making a change happen or we're thinking about innovation. Do you tend to see signals or in the outside world or trends, consumer trends or emerging tech or is it something else? I'm just curious for you, like where those kind of, I guess, first sparks come. No, that's a great question. Um, I I think my brain knows it before I know it. I, I, I tend to notice patterns and I have some sort of subconscious pattern recognition processing where I'm just my thought is something something's shifting or something isn't right or this just seems like a lot of people are doing this and I may not have early on the words to articulate what's happening or why but I'm noticing a trend is is afoot and I um, one example is I started to notice um before the Web3 kind of explosion, um, I, I have a media background and I was just noticing social media was hitting this like wild west of, of everyone reposting. And I, you know, I didn't mention this, but I have a background in IP law. And so I was just like, you can't just take published things. You can't take other people's like, there's no, it almost seems like there are just no rules. And that can't be sustainable. And so I started to feel like something was about to happen. And that's really where very shortly after that, NFTs, blockchain, a lot more credibility around like copyright conversations around that. And so things are operating differently now. Um, and so that was just an example of like 
you start to notice something. And I think that that's the, the first, first step is like, hmm, seems different. I don't know why, or this doesn't work anymore. And we need to think what will work. That's amazing. And I think spotting those kind of a trends in the outside world and then connecting the dots is obviously something that can be you've really kind of a cultivated um, such a skill at. I'm thinking about people who are going to listen to this and want to do what you do. Um, are there particular skills or traits you see that make someone good at futurism or innovation? Because you talked about spotting signals and seeing trends and connecting the dots. But do you think that's something a bit in your personality or, or is there like a um, thinking lots of people want to do what you do? Is there a skill or trait that you think people need to cultivate? Yes. Actually, I do. I, I think that there right now there are a lot of people involved in innovation and there are a lot of things for what that is. Um, when I was early in my career, innovation was just like the person who ran the tech, like what would now be like a CTO. And that's so unlike any work that I've ever done. I'm, I'm not that person. Um, likewise, there are a lot of people who have really heavy like consulting backgrounds like like you know business consulting backgrounds which are so valuable to innovation but also require a very different skill set so specifically for me I've always been a very strategic thinking type of person I'm also very curious and I think that that innately allows me to do my work well because it's I, I'm not afraid of this unknown territory. I, I actually embrace it and I'm like charging ahead. Um, so I think if if we're specifically talking about the work that I, I do and that I've done, um, it's really about not being afraid of the future and like also being okay not knowing as you're developing it, um, which isn't for everyone. I mean, some people really love to work on like Coca-Cola, they know the audience, like, you know, traditional, traditional brand, like no changes. And there's value to that as well. It's just very different than the work that I do, which is like, what can we do? That's the exact opposite of what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think a little courage, a little curiosity, um, and being, and, you know, having that innate strategic mindset of just kind of like being able to put things together, um, and then also being okay when they don't work. I definitely want to kind of touch on that um, in a bit. Can you talk to me about some of the projects um, that you're proud of? Like, I'm really curious around the things that you've done that, you know, even looking back, like, I, I'm still kind of super excited by that because I'm curious about, you know, what made them a success. Yeah. Um, well, my, one of my favorite examples is actually of a project that failed technically. Um, because I think it just really speaks to the innovative process and and not staying attached to something beyond its expiration date, essentially. So um, one of the projects, so I was, I was running an innovation lab. One of our clients was Target. They had an amazing innovation department and they had a great idea for um, a three- Part device that was like an auto refill device really a beautiful product it was already designed it had a great idea of like who the target demo was going to be this like single guy who loves tech and like has money and you know doesn't want to be bothered when they have to buy paper towels and soap you know it was 
it made it made perfect sense. But our challenge was to test it and to see is there actually an audience. And what we found was like the benchmark was not we weren't able to reach the like fairly low benchmark. It, it remains one of my favorite things because it's such a good lesson, and it it's a good lesson in just because the idea is great and the product's great. And you think you know who you want to market to, it doesn't mean that it works. And there you have that's like the biggest takeaway with innovation is like recognizing when something doesn't work and pivoting or pivoting so much that you work on something else. <laughs> like I think and those are really important lessons. Um great product just didn't didn't have a home because a lot of people who who might actually want to use this likely live in an area where they just go to like a Costco or, you know, they buy in bulk. Maybe they're going to Target, but they're buying in bulk. And, um, you know, this guy who was targeted as this dream demographic, he's not buying bulk paper towels and hand soap in his apartment on the corner in New York City. You know, he's running down in the bodega if he runs out. You know, it's it's just that has been something that I've always been really fascinated about through my work is like really understanding the audience and being really honest about who that audience is. Um, I once worked with a very mainstream beauty brand, um, very popular. Everybody knows it. And they had this vision that they were so, so, so premium that they needed to be at like Sundance and you know the Oscars and like these other and it's like well that's great but that's not actually who you're who's buying your product so you know I think that there's so much vulnerability with that when it comes to building a brand where you have to really real about it the person buying your product may not be the person you had thought you were marketing to I think there's um, lots of parallels when you do, I guess, first of a kind product development where you design this perfect user experience and, you know, you're watching people say, I've been in this position watching someone kind of test something out for the first time. And you're like, you designed every step, you know, exactly what they should do, but they don't always do that. Or they might find better ways and workarounds that you hadn't even thought of. And I think it's that those observation skills are really important. So I think it's where like the kind of a you might have planned for A, but like B is really happening and it's how you kind of navigate that. I think it's quite interesting. With that really quickly, um, going back to your other question about like what some skills are, I think really being open to adaptability and and not being so anchored into an, a certain outcome is essential for in the startup world, in the innovation world. I mean, I've seen a lot of people hold so tight and then they go down with the ship. Talk to me. Do you find that I've got a hunch that the people that hold on really tightly are typically from more kind of a corporate backgrounds? Is that right, or have you have you seen that? That would be my guess too. Um, but there could be a number of factors. I mean, corporate background. It could be if you're a startup founder, you're just like you've already put in so much work, and you're. It could be your personality, and you're just not someone who who pivots naturally or adapts, and you're just my way is the way and sometimes having that personality works and makes you an amazing founder because you're relentless and sometimes depending on what the data is and what the circumstances 
it will destroy you. Thinking about the example that you just shared around, I guess, navigating an innovation, well, I guess, failure with Target, where you've got the right product, the right demographic, it just doesn't land. And and I think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting space where everything can be right and all the indicators are giving you confidence in something, but it doesn't work. And I'm thinking about your work in consumer goods and creating new products. Have you ever been in a position where you feel like you really know your audience and their needs? You know the demographic, you know your target group, but the customer testing or research is giving you a different perspective. And I'm curious, how do you go about trusting your gut versus an instinct versus the data that you're hearing? Because often my like customer testing can be quite small groups. So it's really hard. I guess it's the opposite of um, your story, have you ever been in a position where, you know, you feel like you really know the the trend, the audience the, and who it, who it's for, but the data isn't telling you the right story? Like, how do you ba- balance trusting your gut and instinct versus sticking, like, like, I guess, like cutting losses? I think you, I think you trust your gut to an extent. Like if, if all of the data is saying no and your gut is saying yes, you need to really, there are a lot of factors to explore there. Like why is your gut so strong and you're not reading the data <laughs> or where's the data and what is the data? And I think that that is, that is um, you know, you're right. I, I've done a lot of innovation work where we use focus groups, which is like such a small sample of, and I personally, I don't think that they really hold a lot of weight. Um, I did for a number of years um, work around using crowdsourcing, like a Kickstarter and Indiegogo, like crowdsourcing validation to really show like, well, who's willing to put money behind it? Like who's willing to actually make that transactional validation moment where they're saying, yes, I'm not just saying I'm interested, like a focus group where I'm paid to be there, but I'm choosing to be a part of it. But even then, there are strategies of onboarding. And so, you know, I think the question is really how how are you getting all that information? And is it really robust enough to to represent the people that are your maybe your consumers? Like, are you actually casting a wide enough net to test this out? And is that the result? Or is this kind of piecemeal through a couple different ways of gathering information and I think that is where your gut plays a part where like if you've done this enough and you've done a lot of different types of validation and you know you've worked across different industries you've seen it before there is or you're an expert in in a certain field like there is a lot of value to that and you should lean on your intuition to an extent but I think it's really a combination of both. Tell me more about the crowdfunding and using kind of a tools like that to help kind of give you confidence or not in a, in, in a new concept. That sounds like far more powerful than focus groups and customer testing. Well, it, it's definitely, it was different. I, I don't know if anyone's using it now as validation. It, you know, it's just, what's funny is about innovation, especially corporate innovation, it, it seems to always kind of adapt it, in itself. It innovates uh, in the industry. But there was a moment where that was a very powerful tool because a lot of people were using crowdfunding just in their lives. So, you know, you're going to where the audience 
is the audience on a lot of these crowdfunding sites. I don't know that they are now. Uh, I think a lot of things have shifted. Um, even with Web3, you know, like that was a great way to test as well. Because like, where are people? Well, they're, you know, they're over here. They're on this Discord. They're, it's like you, there are little indicators of if people are actually interested, but you actually have to think through like, well, they might be interested in joining the community, but are they then interested in purchasing the product? And then are they interested in staying a lifelong consumer? So you got you have to create a whole framework of different ways to test and and really check whether or not something is working. And especially when you're when you're launching a product and you're a founder, a startup founder, you know, as in most cases you're building an audience from scratch. And so there's a lot of work with that. And you know, I, I think I think in that case, in his crowdfunding doesn't work. Um, there's just I don't know. I, I think I think I think it was so great when for a minute when that's where everyone was, but now now everyone is somewhere else, and it's a matter of like finding where they are. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I think that's a really interesting concept of like, where are people? What are they talking about? And really, I think it's actually probably a call to action for people listening who are in the business of validating ideas in a corporate environment, in a product environment space, to think about where people are and what are ways to, I guess, hedge their bets and really convert, test widely um, and test across demographics, not just the one that you've designed for and, 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 and see what comes up. Let me ask you about, because you've done so many different, really interesting different, I guess, types of innovation from the accelerator process with NASA, which you're going to have to tell me about because I'm just like fascinated, to corporate innovation um, and also product development. Do you, are there particular traits of how these things work in different fields? So is corporate innovation, you know, do you have a very different approach for that than say an accelerator? You know, that's it. I kind of had this theory where I think we're all doing the same role. It just looks different. And I think, especially with innovation, um, it's different across the, the different categories that you've listed. Like, you know, an accelerator program is usually full of like new start new founders. And in that case, they may need a lot of support in just like, you know, they might have a great idea and be an industry expert in X but really not know how to create branding and marketing or understanding an audience or any of the things that really make the difference between having a great product that's here and having a great product that's like out to the masses. I would say the simple answer is that it's a lot of the same in that you're thinking through the same types of challenges you're developing out strategies um thinking really leaning again on the audience piece and and really trying to understand it's a lot of that 
Um, but I think the execution looks very different. Like typically in an accelerator format, like they're just so grateful to be getting the guidance. And a lot of times in like the corporate innovation, you have to deal with a lot of red tape. And um, even if the innovation team is very, you know, lean and startup-y and innovative within the corporate brand, they're still within that larger umbrella. And so, you know, there's typically a lot of tape, which can sometimes often hinder innovation, which, you know, we saw a lot with like and, you know, it's just, it's a, it, you have to get approval before putting it out there and testing and, you know, that whole fail fast innovation phrase, which is like, if you're going to fail, you want to know now and not in the future. And so when there's a lot of red tape and a lot of like blocks around getting something out and testing it, it makes the failing process uh, just a little bit more prolonged. And do you have to then, if you are going to test things in the market, do it in like a fake brand, for example? Like what are ways that I guess corporate entrepreneurs and people kind of in that role like can get around that red tape? The red tape is typically internal, <laughs> but you know, we, we did have, I, I did work with a brand once that had this exact conversation. They had an amazing technology that would change the way you use soap and, and different cleansing products. And, um, you know, the conversation was really around, do we lean on this very well-known brand to really anchor this product and, and, and tell everyone, like, we know what we're doing. We've been doing this for years and we're the experts and trust us and to lean off of the brand loyalty that already exists or do we really use this as a startup product and with a new name incognito like and uh <laughs> you know do we do that uh and then we don't have an audience so then people are going to think well who is this random brand i don't trust them so so there are a lot of things go into play with that, um, thinking through. How important is brand to, I guess, the in innovation activities of like any company? Do you think that sets like lines in the sand to a degree of the space to play? Yes, I think it does. Um, but I don't think it has to be that way. So I think if, yeah, if you're a brand that is already loved and you know people already have strong opinions about it and, and their positive opinions then I think that's that's great you can build it right off of that in a much easier way um if you're not a brand that has a lot of brand recognition there are a lot of opportunities to just partner with known brands and you know you see that happening a lot where if you're a new to market brand you don't have that following. You don't have that audience. So where is that audience? Oh, it's over here with this brand and their brand is like a, you know, a nice sister partnership brand. So let's do something and then reach their audience. So, yeah, I think, I think it just depends on what the product is, but certainly it can hold you back if you're, if people have a certain idea about what your brand is, um, and it can also be an advantage if you're new to the market. You just have to be really smart about how you conquer the market when you are new to it. Have that built-in audience. Thinking about you and your process for a minute, um, where do you go to like feed your creative brain, and and you know where do you go for inspiration? I think I just I 
just kind of am curious. I, I just kind of try to pay attention to all the things. I think uh, social media really has a lot of almost information overload, but it certainly gives you a sense of kind of what's happening, what's trending, what's no longer trending. And um, yeah, I mean, I would say just trying to like stay in the know. Um, and I, that's really where I think noticing trends is important because it's not just going to be whatever the trend is on social media. It's going to be the trend, like things that are happening all over across all different things. I don't have a really great example, but it, you know, it's like the shows that we're watching, it's social media, it's the news, it's like, it's clothing, it's really everything. And then somehow creating a cross section of like where they intersect and kind of that's, that's what's happening. Because I think what a lot of people don't always think about is that when we see things like they're likely orchestrated. And that's really where I, when I started my career, did a lot of work around like media conglomerates and um, like who owns, which brands own which products and self-promotion within the magazines. And it's like, you think you're just reading a regular magazine, but actually there's like 15 layers of self-promotion across the different properties within that one magazine. And so, you know, I think if you're not someone who works developing strategies for your career, you often don't think that everything out there has been strategically designed to look and feel a certain way. And a lot of times it has. And so I think it's really to answer your question, like really keeping an eye open and, and noticing things and, you know, if something seems different or feels different, like taking note why, what's happening behind that, go from there. Oh, I think that's a really powerful thing, Rebecca, because it makes me think about fashion. When I was younger, I used to find it really interesting how even such different design houses would put out collections and you could see themes across them. But that's because those designers, those transporting, trend spotters for the brands are having, are seeing the same thing. They're seeing big exhibitions they're seeing kind of a big iconic things happening at the same time. And then there are threads, like obviously different houses will do their own spin on things. But now I never see it a bit, I think you articulated it really well around there's actually kind of a layers and threads of somebody has kind of a made a decision of what you're going to see. I think it's an, another way it comes out in, is the kind of, a, um, I guess, fashion world, which as a youngster, I would think, God, how are they all kind of doing similar things? But now it feels like really obvious. And it, I guess it's interesting around for us as consumers, if people are only reading less magazines or things where they're strategically placed and more in the, I guess, the creator economy and the individual influencer, is that actually really going to disrupt things or would it, would it go the same way? I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're creating it. It's not something that's happening to us. So like, if you want to create something and change something, uh, I mean, you you as an individual may need like a massive following to do that but like that's that's what's happening I mean we're not it's not happening to us <laughs> like it's not the trends out there what is it and we're searching for it it's it's being developed by everything that we're doing in the moment and so you know I think creator economy is so interesting because it's really kind of flipping the traditional model on its head because normally 
the like corporate brands that, or even just the known brands like in fashion, like they were really the ones that were developing what's next. And, you know, now when you have an audience of millions of people and you're a creator, you know, and you don't have that background, but you are influential in what you share, like that's really powerful. And so that's really making a lot of shifts happen. I mean, that's really where like the corporate innovation model came from was um, brand, corporate brands were doing their thing and they were, there was really no need to innovate in the sense of like that we know it today because you need this, you're going to buy that brand. You need this toothpaste, you're buying this brand. You know, it's like there were only so many options. Um, and then startups came and started disrupting. And like, um, it was really a point where brands were like, oh, we need to change what we're doing or this isn't not good for us. Like I worked with um, a corporate mattress company that after Casper, the box mattress was like so popular um really the first one casper was the first time where like they broke the model of where you how you buy mattresses now it's much more common but um i worked with them and they were like oh well maybe we should change the retail experience in our stores we've had the same model for like 100 years and it's like yeah because that's not working <laughs> you know um so, you know, we saw that a lot of brands after startups came, they were they were adapting, but now, you know, then influencers and creator economy. And so it's really just the last 10 years have been very interesting for brands. Let me ask you this. Let me pick your brain. Is there anything you think is really overhyped right now, I guess, in content about innovation and technology? And then I guess, conversely, is there anything that you think is interesting that isn't really kind of a picked up by by the mainstream? I really like things before they become like everyone's obsession. I think that like AI is so interesting and can like will change so many areas of our lives. I didn't love when everyone was, there was like a pop over the summer where it was like everyone was talking about AI nonstop and obsessed with it and scared and it's like everyone's an expert and it's like when those things start to happen I tend to like pull back a little bit like well everyone's an expert so you know what's the conversation and just a bunch of experts having conversation but I think it's it with any of these themes what's so important is is onboarding the masses and I feel like when these these things happen I saw it also with web3 it tends to be a bunch of people who have like my like experience talking to themselves and not really taking the time to like bring in the people who are like, I don't really understand what's happening here, but I want to understand it. And so with Web3, a lot of the work that I did early on was educating like chief innovation officers for different brands and teams and and explaining like what's a metaverse, what's an NFT blockchain how does it how does it work here like what are what's possible through this and you know having that foundational experience is really so important because then people are empowered to like build off of that within their own teams or for themselves rather than everyone just being like talk 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 and so I think I think 
all of it's so interesting and exciting and like there's so many different like things happening right now I don't know where it goes um but I think the key the key takeaway is really to like pause and to be able to onboard people because even if it's being written about I, I mean it was so interesting I would see this with all the time where people were writing there were so many articles and and people would say to me like can you explain it to me is because I guess they can't do anything with it and then you're you're really blocking innovation at that point I think um it's time for some quick fire questions so okay if you could only listen to one song for the rest of your life what would it be oh gosh um oh I don't want to listen to any song what for the rest of my life but I have been listening to uh Pink Floyd's Crazy Diamond on her because it's it's like 13 minutes and calming and I really great background what's your signature dish to impress friends or family um even if you're not a good cook I'm not sure that I have one but I do love to like and I I make some pretty good grilled vegetables what I found talking to loads of label mates is like cooking is such a big theme for a lot of people, either where they kind of come up with their ideas or where they decompress. So that's why being kind of a nosy about your kind of a, um, your, your cooking and your favorite dishes. And next one, what makes somebody a good traveling companion? For me, um, kind of like with it, kind of like be work with innovation, being able to pivot, being open and being curious being like interested to try and go to new places that you haven't been before I don't want to do the thing I've done 500 times I, I want to go somewhere totally in another life what would your career be your geologist really what was the first work thing you were really proud of honestly all of like everything I've done has been so interesting I I've had a great I've had a great run <laughs> Um, I would say something that is a little bit different than what we were talking about. So I'll share this. Um, I did a lot of work with um, the state of Kuwait doing the economic sustainability in like 2016, the um, the program, the development program. And so they came out with the whole like economic plan, they being not me. And my role was to develop out how do we share this plan that is so important as the like whole country shifts the way that they are funding people and the different structures. And so my, my role was to develop out the strategy um, and to really go into, well, like, well, what are we going to share to the millennial innovative person who's a startup founder in Kuwait, who's like really excited about the shift versus the like, 65 year old who's been working for the government for his whole career and like those are very different groups and like how do we also present this out globally and so that was really fun just because it was even though it's using a lot of the same tools that I use for a consumer brand or any anything really um it was so fun because it was, it was very different I felt like that was like impactful are there any um pieces of advice that you've had on your career along the way that have been quite memorable to you like I guess I want to know what the best piece of advice you've ever kind of been given or or you know has impacted you might be I can tell you the 
piece of advice that I think has impacted me the most that actually wasn't, I did the opposite of it. I think, I think a lot of shifts have happened in just in, obviously in the last couple of years too, but just the way we work, the type of work we're doing, I mean, things that make people millions and millions of dollars didn't exist five years ago, you know? And so I remember, uh, you know, like middle of my career ish, like I was just kind of entering the middle. I was like really to mid and, um, I had been given the advice, like, you don't have to change, you know, you can stay at a job longer than X, like, why don't you stay for two years? And why I was leaving was actually because I was offered a higher title, higher position, more responsibility, more money, like essentially being promoted, but at a different company. And so, you know, that to me was a really interesting moment where I had to learn. And even though it's pretty young, I had to learn just because this generation did things a different way doesn't mean that that works for me in my career. And I think that that really trickles down to also the work that I do with products and brands and, and you know, consumers because it didn't make sense to stay. Why? Why? Just because in the past you stay somewhere X number of years, but I'm being offered something better. Why wouldn't I move and do that? And it's exciting. And so you know, it was advice, but it wasn't advice I took. And, and that was kind of the lesson. <laughs> you know, some, I think it's just been so interesting hearing about your journey because it feels like in some of the, the things that you've been really kind to share with me, it's like the adjacent thinking and really listening to signals and being open to change. And I think that openness to change is not something that everybody has, but I think it's something that I, I get, I think i definitely taking that away from this conversation around being open to the realities of what customers are telling you and testing open to possibilities from you know research and signals around where the world is going and finding where the conversation is actually happening rather than where you think it's happening um i've got one last question to ask you and it's something that we ask everybody okay on a scale of one to ten how weird are you I would say I'm silly and I wouldn't say I'm weird. I would say maybe I'm like a three. I'm not weird. I, I think I, I do. I think, I think it's more like silly, funny. I like to laugh. I like to like make jokes. I, yeah, maybe I'm a three. <laughs> well. I think that's a good place to but finish. I know, you have to ask someone else. That maybe other people think I'm like an eight. So, who does? You Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been so fun. Thank you. Talk soon. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.